You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. Paul is now going to read the book to you. <laughs> Not all. I was, I, I, I was reading up today that there have been riots in this theatre. I think, I think there'd be one if I tried to read it all out to you. Um, suppose I told you there was a machine that could run the country better than the government, think more logically than any single human being, and run autonomously. Suppose I asked you to hand control of all the important decisions in your life to that machine. Suppose I said you would be happier if you changed your behavior to anticipate what the machine decides. In the book I've written, I hope you would scorn the whole idea. In Dublin, I'm quite happy to put it like this. I hope you would tell me to F off. Um, But try substituting the word market for the machine. For three decades, millions of people have allowed market forces to run their lives, shape their behavior, and overrule their democratic rights. There's even a religion dedicated to worshipping this machine's power and control, and it's called economics. By elevating the market to the status of an autonomous, superhuman spirit guide, during the past 30 years, we've potentially prepared ourselves to accept machine control for real sometime during the next 100 years. During the free market era, we learned to celebrate the subjection of human beings to market forces. We treated concepts like citizenship, morality, agency, the power to act, as if they were irrelevant to the workings of the world, which was now run only by consumer choice and financial engineering. Now, however, the free market system has imploded. The logic of selfishness, hierarchy, and consumerism no longer works. And as a result, the religion of the market has given way to older gods, racism, nationalism, misogyny, and the idealization of powerful thieves. As we approach the 2020s, an alliance of ethnic nationalists, woman haters, and authoritarian political leaders are tearing the world to shreds. What unites them is their disdain for universal human rights and their fear of freedom. They love the idea of machine control, and if we let them, they will deploy it aggressively to keep themselves rich, powerful, and unaccountable. It's not too late to stem the chaos and disorder to stop the attempt to impose new biological hierarchies based on race, gender, and nationality, and to refuse machine control. But the arguments for surrendering to them are all around us. The idea that humanity is already over is deeply embedded in modern thought, from the alt-right to the academic left. No matter how much you personally are trying to live by human values, the consensus is, from Silicon Valley to the Chinese Communist Party HQ, that human values have no foundation, that there is no such thing as human nature, no logical basis to privilege humans over all machines, no rationale for universal human rights. So with hindsight, the the free market ideology looks like the gateway drug for a more pervasive anti-humanism. And we're about to find out just how damaging this harder drug could be. Compete and acquire 
was the first commandment of the free market religion. In the era of deglobalization and right-wing nationalism, it will become compete, acquire, lie, control, and kill. If we don't place the new technology of intelligent machines under human control and program them to achieve human values, the values they will be designed around are the values of Putin, Trump, and Xi Jinping. So I've written this book as an act of defiance, and when you've read it, I hope you, you too will make acts of defiance, and they can range from bringing down dictators to setting up human-centered projects in your neighborhood, or to simply defying machine logic in your daily life. To resist effectively, we need a theory of human nature that can survive in conflict with free market economics, with machine worship, and with the anti-humanization of parts of the academic left. We need, in short, a radical defense of the human being. That's a bit from the first bit. It was like a, a team wrote the book. There's some like a sort of, where's the other people? I mean, it's a, I'm, I'm lonely. Want to come down here? I'm lonely here. Um, I'm going to ask a few questions arising in part from what Paul has said and in part from parts of the book that I've read. Um, but if anybody wants, during the course of my interchanges with Paul, wants to intervene, they're welcome to do so. Um, but at about 10 to 9 or so, We'll uh, go to questions from the audience anyway. Um, one of the themes, one of the central arguments you make is that uh, neoliberalism, neoliberalism has shattered and that it's about to expire. And many of us will find that hard to believe um, for maybe just this reason, that the European Union is a carrier for neoliberalism and it doesn't look like it's going to forfeit that task in any time in the near future. Okay, so what, what I say in the book is that, that neoliberalism to me is not a set of ideas, it's a, a, an objective fact, it's a system, like the Keynesian uh, you know, state economic system was that came before it. It has a beginning and a middle and, and an end, and we're towards the end of it. In this sense, uh, it, for me it's defined by the coercive imposition of market norms of behaviour and relationships into all aspects of human life. There's an academic at Goldsmiths University, Will Davis, who puts it like this, it's the disenchantment of politics by economics. You could rephrase it, it's the evisceration of politics, social, sociology, morality, everything by economics. Everything became economics and large numbers of people bought the idea that, that it was forever, this is forever, it, it, there's nothing better, uh, free market economics plus liberal democracy will more or less last forever. It'll be quite boring, says, says Fukuyama. Everyone will become technocratic. Uh, I think that happened for a while. But then it stopped working in 2008. And what I argue in the, in the economic bit of the book, which is not the main argument, uh, it, it is the kind of setup, is that what's happened is that you can keep an economic system on life support. I mean, for sure, the European Central Bank, the Fed, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, they've pumped 15, 16 trillion dollars worth of quantitative easing money into the economy. That keeps it on life support. Mark Carney puts it very well, the, the Bank of England governor. He says, the problem is we don't know whether this is a bridge or a pier. And if we're really unlucky, it's a pier. Uh, we, we, we're going nowhere. Because the inner logic of neoliberalism was that... the 
it was never the state standing back to allow the market to operate because they knew from the 1930s, the neoliberals, that if you do that, the market cr creates consolidation, monopoly, uh, you know, big, big formations. It, it's the state continually intervening to recreate the market. Now, I argue that after 2008, it's had to do that in an entirely illegitimate way because it, you can keep the economy on life support, but the human brain demands of an ideology coherence. It says, you say a small state, but, but you're propping up the banking system. You say uh, the market rules everything, um, yet the state had to save the market. You say outsourcing works, but in Britain, one after the other of these giant outsourcing firms, Carillion, uh, Interserve, Capita, are repeatedly having to be rescued and bailed out. You say the private sector runs things better, but on, when accidentally a, a railway line in Britain you know, falls back into public hands, it runs better then. And because the inner as it were, justification of neoliberalism no longer works. It's that, that's the belief in it that's fallen apart. I think it's entirely possible, and Carney said it, that if, if we have another crisis on the scale of, say, what happened here in 2011 or what happened in Britain in 2008-09, they'll just dump 10 grand into everybody's bank account. They'll just print it and do it. But for me, the failure of belief in that is, is the cause, or one of the causes, of the rise of the right. Because... In the search for coherent explanations of the world, as I explained in the book very quickly, the, right, the ultra-right in US economics, like Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal, they concluded really quickly into the Lehman Brothers crisis, this means democracy and freedom are no longer compatible. That's what he says, the guy who runs PayPal. And guess, should, what? And guess what? PayPal's helping Nigel Farage. Why should uh, we be impressed by what he says? Well, because I think he, 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 he's just a good example of... The way the, the economic right, the libertarian right, reinvented what I call in the book the thought architecture of fascism. Because if democracy and freedom aren't compatible, what you want is freedom, economic freedom for them. You're quite happy then to stage an attack on the constitutional democratic values of a country like America. And it took them a while to find the guy who would do it. But they found the guy and the movement out of the same issue. The same issue of opposition to state to state bailouts for the banks and opposition to state intervention into the economy. Uh, no, as you said to me before we came on, none of that was new in American life, but it was what changed for me was the preparedness of a section of the elite to embrace it, to embrace the Tea Party, to embrace crooks like Trump and, and his associates um, as the solution. So, it, so neoliberalism is a zombie system. Uh, it's on life support and I think... Um, the task in, in economics, in policy making, is to come up with something coherent that replaces it. You said, uh, like there were several things you said there that I would disagree with, but one of the things that I now can, can remember is, um, <laughs> um, is uh, that you said ideology has got to be coherent, and um, no, it doesn't. Um, it for helps instance, us. religion, uh, which is yep. the ideology that is that has been most pervasive in this society, it doesn't need to be coherent, and it's been, been incoherent for, for uh, millennia, millennia, mm. so for 100, 200,000 years. Well, the thing that cultural studies people noticed about, about neoliberal 
ideology was, was how inescapable it looked. The, 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 there's plenty of studies that say, look, unlike, say, the Soviet Union's ideology, all, with the Soviet Union, all, you were told, this is the greatest country in the world, everybody else is poor. You know, you get on a plane to go, go weightlifting in the Los Angeles Olympics, and wow, you know, you find out it's a lie. Um, it, it wasn't easy to find out that neoliberalism was a lie because uh, the more you behaved that way, that, that acquisitive, in, uh, kind of self-centered, uh, dog-eat-dog, stab-in-the-back uh, celebration of, of, of antisociality, the more you behaved in that way, the better you felt until it all went wrong. I mean, you remember here, you know, I, I was getting into cabs and ta with taxi drivers in 2011 with people saying, thank God I didn't buy that sports car. You know, we all believed it would go on forever and then it's blown up. Um, of course, the same bubble is... is How many taxi drivers said that to you? Well, more, more than one said the same thing. I'm so glad that I didn't invest in X. One said a sports car. Taxi drivers? Yeah. Taxi drivers. People no, said I would have borrowed 30 grand for a big red sports car, and now I'm so glad I didn't. But maybe it's here. What's, uh, but what, what's her name? Her name, I don't <laughs> know. Her name. It was a he. Um, but look, that ideology blew up. It no longer works. No, the thing is, yes, it, there's no requirement for an ideology to be to be coherent. But if it's if it's being touted as the last one ever, to which there is no alternative. The kind of discovery that it is incoherent. Okay, that was Fukuyama, but uh, but not many people know Fukuyama or pay that much attention to him. Um, for instance, another ideology that we've had here, which has which really was maybe more more um, powerful than even religion, uh, was nationalism. Yeah. And uh, and still, nationalism is a powerful force all over the world and mm. here. And the fact that it is incoherent and the fact that it's probably based on lies, makes no difference. No, I mean, that's true, but, but neoliberalism was sold as the, as the... And I think many people did intuit. I mean, Fukuyama wasn't a kind of... You know, it wasn't like an academic. It was, it was cascaded into the public... Uh, I mean, I, I suppose many people have heard of the, the end of history as an idea, as a kind of barstool conversation. Certainly, all my bosses on Newsnight, when I was working at, yeah. at, at the BBC, more or less believed this. And I write in the book that I used to pity... Well, no, I used to, I used to, <laughs> I used to basically sort of you know, envy them because... They had, they had this certainty that all they had to do as these PPE graduates <coughs> from Oxford was to administer the, situa the situation that worked, it administer the system. Uh, now I pity them because there are events happening across their telephone screens every day that they just can't explain. Yeah. The end of history is, has ended and, 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 yeah. and the ideology in that sense, I think, is just decisively shattered. One of the points you made, I think, in your introduction was that ideology, that the, 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 at present ideology infects us as human beings and dic dictates to us what we are um, and that we become um, system, systematically selfless, to use a phrase yep. in your book, risk uh, calculators and conformist... Uh, um, but is this true? Like it's, it seems to me just to be utterly far-fetched. Give you an example. One's attachment to one's to people we love, mm. particularly perhaps your children. That's mm. not uh, interfered with by neoliberalism. The attachments we have to Liverpool or Dublin or, or other sporting uh, teams 
It's not, nothing to do with all this. And the things that matter to us most is not in, interfered with one way or another by neoliberalism. I think that I have observed that for young, that might be true for me and you, but for younger generations, more and more has been encroached on by transactional behaviour. You mind being encroached upon. You said that it takes over from them. That, are you saying that younger people, for instance, allow, allow that their, their, for instance, their love interests... Oh, I are, absolutely do think that. Uh, I, I, do think that I do think that, that, a, that the use of technology, first of all, is, is critical to many, the way many young people find partners and develop relationships. Oh, that's a different no, point. No, completely no, different no, point. But... But then, what, what, what they are using the technology for, well, there's, there's a clear transactional basis of something like Tinder, where they're going, yes, yes, no, swiping this way and the other way. And, and then you, you mould your personality for that transaction. You become like a kind of... But I, I'm not on it, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I hasten to add. Uh, but, but, but you become kind of a, a, a shop... It's a shop window for a fake personality. I, I have observed. And then the other thing is, I mean, they're sending nude pictures to each other. This, the, the transactional nature of finding and keeping a partner, I think is pretty obvious if you're in that business. You know, I am not. But, um, but, but I don't think, I don't remember conceiving the whole ideas of love, relationships, sex, and the rest of it in, in the same transactional way as I think that young pe many young people do. This may be a shock Is anybody... I go along with that. Yes. 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 Jesus Christ. They're all, they're all on Tinder. They're all on Tinder. Uh, can, can you turn the lights on those people? <laughs> I can't see them. Um, I don't know anybody who's like that. Not anybody. Let me give you another, let me give you another example. The one that... A few years ago, there was an excellent piece of journalism done in the London Review of Books, which, where somebody had gone undercover inside a... a, a, a I don't think you have it here. Pret-a-Manger? Do you have Pret-a-Manger? Yeah. You do? All right. Well, in the, in, the, in the United Kingdom, I don't know about here, but in the United Kingdom at that time, it was the case that um, Pret had a series of Pret behaviours that the people who work in it had to, had to follow. And they had to be happy. They couldn't pretend to be happy. The, the rules said, we don't want anybody pretending to be happy. You have to be happy. The CEO said, I, I know we're going to make money in, this branch, in the branch if everybody's spontaneously touching each other. Um, if you didn't obey the Pret behaviours, there was a secret shopper who would come in and would say, you didn't smile at me. And, and then the shift was got together and asked to vote you out of a job. Now, if some, my dad was a truck driver and a miner before that. If somebody had told him he had to be touching somebody else, there would be, an, there would be in trouble. But the workplace, even... Yeah, the, the journalistic workplaces I've worked in have never been as performative as that. It's like a kabuki theatre. And I think we play along with it because it's hard to get the coffee. If you go, how are you, how's your mate? How's your mum? You know, what, how, what, what do you think of the football? You've got to do the script. And this is what I'm saying. Vincent, the script that is implicit in the way they have set up the, the customer interaction with you. I mean, I think that it's very different if you walk into a pub, you get treated as a real human being. But if you want an example of this two-dimensionality that I'm thinking about, it is the way many chains of coffee bars and it's particularly Pret at that time, were, were teeing people up to almost do what it's like, act like machines. 
And that's the, the point of my book. Anybody being interviewed by a nurse or a health care professional, where it's quite obvious that they're not asking you a series of questions that come from the interaction. My wife's a nurse, and we've noticed this. Uh, it's not from the interaction. It's what the computer is expecting. And so we become the adjuncts. No, we always have been. We all, cotton mill workers have always been adjuncts of cotton spinning machines, but now nurses are the adjuncts of a computer. And if we're not careful, if we don't start asserting our right to the human-centric interaction, then we're going to lose that right when the machine take over, is my argument. You may, dis <laughs> you, you may disagree. Uh, four, four, pe four people applauded by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. What would you think of guys standing and the precarious? Guys, when so. He says, yeah. So, Guy Standing is an author who, who, who writes about the precarious, I think it's a great term, the precarious working class. Uh, many of them, you'll see them all over Dublin, all over London. Um, and he advocates as a solution for that, paying everybody a basic, a universal basic income. Now, I, I've worked with him, I met him, and I think he's a, a good guy. The, the book that, that I've written isn't about the economic problem of the precariat. It's about a deeper thing. It's, it's my, 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 my theory that the real crisis underlying the economic model that doesn't work, the failing support for human rights and universalism and democracy, and then the sort of submission to Facebook and Google and the rest of it is, is rooted in a, a shallowness of the self that that 30 years of machine control via market has done to us. And, you know, I'm an intensely political writer and commentator and journalist, but writing the book made me look beyond politics back into human life to try and, to try and write something that was about the need to change at that level rather than simply just demanding politicians and leaders do things for us. Hmm. Um, it seems to me that uh, in our society, in most societies, that the problem is that politics is not about people at all. It's about bullshit. Um, that uh, hardly anybody in our in discourse in politics or interviewed about politics or write about politics, talks about the effect of policies on ordinary people, yeah. and particularly on, uh, on the poor sections of, of, uh, of society. And therefore, you have a huge amount of speculation about who's going to win uh, seats in the European election. What does it bloody matter? Um, or whether Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael is going to win more seats in the next election, or when the election is going to be. Like, that sort of stuff consumes so much of our, uh, of our what, what mm. passes for political discourse. Hardly anything about how policies affect yeah. human beings. Now, if your focus is on human beings and how policies affect them in terms of their health, in terms of their education, in terms of their, uh, of their lifestyles, that can, they, can they function? Um, that has nothing at all to do with what you're talking about, technology taking over. No, I, no, no, I agree, because I think that there's two strands to it. Uh, I lived through... So I come from the, you know, uh, a very tightly-knit working-class community in, in, in Lancashire, 
And I lived through and saw its effects on my family of the smashing up of the solidaristic networks that were, were, was done by Thatcher, mainly immensely dramatic moment by Thatcher in the early 1980s. And I was thinking, what did it do to me? How did it make me and the people around me behave and think differently? And, and one of the key moments is almost the first policy thing that neoliberals did was to switch targets for uh, economic policy. And it's, it sounds academic. Okay, they went from a full employment target to a inflation target, to a, a, an inflation target. And to an economist, full employment, that's a number, but inflation, that's a number. But to a human being, having a job is a human thing. And inflation being X percent is, is, not, that, is not that crucial. And what I, what I observed they've done is they'd moved it from human-centric policymaking, that is, we need full employment, to one that was simply numbers, regardless of the impacts on human beings. Now, I think in the book I try and trace a kind of... I, I describe it as a kind of learning by doing for millions of people. The, 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 the people in power taught us that numbers are more important than human beings, number one. <clears throat> and then they taught us... Whatever, however bad it gets, nothing bad ever happens. You can go through any crisis and it's always survivable. And bit by bit, they edged out any idea of an alternative economics to the, to the neoliberal fundamentalism that we've lived through. And that's only a part of the book, but I wanted to do it because I wanted to ask myself, how did I end up on Newsnight and Channel 4 News basically arguing with rich people in a framework and terms set by them. And that every time I suggested that the, that the frame and terms were wrong, it would be like my bosses, it's like I'd done something really uh, unpleasant on the floor of the office. You know, it was, how can you say that, Paul? How would I Give bought, us an example. Well, that, that, that one of my bosses at Newsnight seriously just suggested me, to me in the mid 2000s uh, of the dec 2000s decade that that all theories that house prices, uh, house, housing booms end were wrong. Um, he said to me, Paul, you'll just have to accept it, won't you? You and your, your critical economists, that this house price boom will go on forever. Now, I think that's an ideal. Now, the guy had a PPE, he was a good guy and a, and a, a friend, but we, so many people have Imagine, I mean, that was the. But that that was, was what one guy who was with crackers. No, um, it wasn't. No, <coughs> it wasn't. You've worked in a newsroom. You must have worked, you worked in never, a newsroom. I never came across anybody. Did like you that. not? I mean, Ever. what is in the water here huh? in Dublin? I mean, I don't know what is. What is. What, uh, maybe it's not the water. But I, I found that again and again. No, fair, to be fair, Newsnight was the absolute pinnacle of, of Oxbridge educated elite people. But I, I think what the point I'm trying to make is that, yes, you are right, that. that, that Policies became anti-human, and I wanted to discuss how that no, happened. No, they didn't become anti-human. You don't they think so? No, I don't. I think that, <clears throat> and that's the insidiousness of them, they became very pro-human, pro-rich people. Well, that's and, another way... And, yeah. And, uh, I, There's a bloke over here. Can I just, just, to, just like you, I just want to ask, you put it a different way, Vincent, than I was going to say, but I must say I find this kind of profound, because... Isn't that the success of neoliberalism? Yeah. That it, it legitimised inequality, it legitimised, uh, you know, grotesque tax injustice. <coughs> it almost became rude to suggest it. Like I was shocked the other day, for example, the owner of Amazon could buy every homeless person in the United States a house and he'd still have $16,000 million left. $16 million yeah. left. I mean, that's <coughs> the quality that's off the charts. And it's not a cause of shock. 
No. But but this isn't something new. Think of the Irish famine. And how come did so many people close their eyes to what was going on and ex export wheat out of the country yeah. and foodstuffs out of the country uh, at the time? How did that happen? That happened because of prevailing ideology. Yeah. And it is prevailing ideology that, de 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 that ordains everything. And in my view, it, the problem is ideology. Um, not machines, it's ideology. And we have to combat an ideology that ordains a, uh, uh, ongoing inequality in the way that it has. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, however, however, first thing is to go back to, to your example, uh, the, the, extreme, the extreme inequalities. Um, what, why did we buy it? In the book, I describe the neoliberalist, the, the upswing of neoliberalism, 79, 89, through to about 2001, as, as a process of breaking and then building. See, my community I come from, and I, in, I went back and interviewed my school friends for this book. Uh, and and the, the, obviously, we all knew, because you know, we'd all lived through the, the 81 through 89 desolation period. It was nothing happening. What happened in that period? All the badans, all the, all the kind of wronguns, as we say in Lancashire, in the community became the heroes of the community. The people who'd been ostracised as kind of selling dodgy stuff down the market, stealing your bike, um, working beyond the union, outside union control, they were now the heroes. And our dads, who'd held the society together, they were the enemy within. So this is the first thing, they break it down. But it couldn't have gone on just on a breakdown process. They had to inject something good. And what they injected, when I asked my school friends, I said, what destroyed the community you come from? And they didn't say unemployment, they said credit. Credit gave people the idea that you could have status without work. And your job is to keep your your credit card ticking over, your mortgage ticking over, and eventually your cell phone contract ticking over. And I think trying to understand the psychological process whereby they, they captured everybody, the credit thing is important. And then when you look at it throughout the world, and there's some examples in the book, you know, in, in, in Russia under Yeltsin, in uh, Brazil or as they, the slums were gathered and created uh, in the 1980s, it was always the idea that some, a few people could get rich, whether by drugs or by lending, doorstep lending, uh, or just by, by organised crime. It couldn't have been so, so successful unless it produced these, I won't say what I think about, that these bankers who, uh, in your country, all ended up not in jail, but uh, escaping the country. It, they were the ones, because every young guy in a, a cheap suit, you know, with a new... Portscar wants to be that guy until 2011. So I think it's my answer is it wasn't just by a process of coercion. It was a it was a there was a carrot as well as the stick that kept the ideology going. But then when it but blew up, that's always been the case. Well, it? yeah, Vincent, I, I think all ideologies keep themselves going through the carrot and the stick. But what I've said about this one is that there was no trip to LA. It was very difficult to see the alternative once the Soviet Union had gone, which of course I deplore the Soviet Union, but it looked like there were two realities in the world. After 1989, most people accepted there's one reality, you can't escape it, you can't do left politics, better to, 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 to kowtow to it all. And then the, the psychological effect of it blowing up in 2008 has been to disorientate so many people that they start looking for crazy, truly crazy, quasi-fascist ideology. And, and the meat of the book really is about what we do about that. Oh, oh, okay. Um, a lot There's of people, people claim that, a, that, that a, a existential 
change has occurred in our societies by the emergence of Trump and by Brexit. And they see, the, see that as one. You see it as well, symptomatic? Are, are they, it's the same thing, is it? I think when, you know, 2016, uh, the Super, 2015 Super Bowl, uh, Beyonce fronts it, but people dressed in hot pants as Black Panther members. Uh, it's nine years of uninterrupted growth under Obama. Not perfect. He's pulled out of almost every war, apart from the drone strikes. Not many people getting killed. Why would a section of the elite risk it all on a crazy crook? Why would they do that? Um, I think, it, to me, so it's a big thing. That in the, you know, Hitler... And the precursors to Hitler, the dictators, von Papen, Breuning, you know, before Hitler in Germany, came out of a society with 25% unemployment, and who, which had been defeated in a war and had its psychology shattered. Trump came out of the blue sky. And I, that's why I think it's so big, because, because Trump represents for me a break by a section of the neoliberal elite towards non-global neoliberalism. I call it Thatcherism in one country. It's, it's, it's the doubling down on all the things that happened to our dads and mothers in the 80s, but now done for nationalist reasons, to get one over on China, to get one over on Germany. Um, they, these guys will break up the global multilateral system, and though I, I'm no fan of these multilateral organisations, the European Union, NATO, the rest of them, the world without multilateral obligations is just literally a jungle and in a jungle weak weak animals get killed and I feel quite like one of them and I'd rather live in a multilateral system so I think that is the big change for Trump we could talk about the psychology of his okay. followers but is this something that's likely to endure or can you say with certainty it will endure for isn't it likely that if he's defeated by a Democrat in the next presidential election that they will restore the America's participation in these world organisations. This is the New York Times view of the world, um, and I wish it were right. Uh, and, and it might be. I, as journalists, all we can do is make instant judgments about reality that, that's around us. I suspect not, though, because suppose a Demo any old Democrat wins, <coughs> Joe Biden wins, excuse me, <coughs> He'll, Trump will not go lightly uh, at all. Uh, he's right now. Even the mildest Democrat, like Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg he, he's, he's trying to depict him as an unacceptable person. And what, what that's teeing up is a refusal to leave office. Mm. However, as, <clears throat> as the executive power, Trump has also got a lot of uh, cards up his sleeve. He could start a war. He could have the election in the middle of a war. That's never been, you know, it's always been... Few American presidents have wanted to do that, you know. Uh, he could... He could certainly, uh, he is moving towards a, a, a situation where, you know, even though this impeachment issue, as, as the Democrats have pointed out, if he's done something impeachable, it's not a political question whether to impeach him. Congress constitutionally has to impeach him, and yet isn't. So I think we're moving, as we do in all crises, Right now, he's got this mass base. The mass base are very useful. They disorganise everything. There's an article in the Nation magazine today about how many alternative and left bookshops are being continually invaded by violent protests. You don't read about it. They're breaking up just as the, as the, as the fascists did in Italy in 1921. Um, society's ability to resist them. But at a certain point, I think he will switch uh, 
and he will throw aside, just as all these dictators, Hitler did as well, he will throw aside the mass movement and, re- and base himself in the executive itself. I think, I'd have to say, it is a, ch- is a big change for post-war America. Um, there have been sort of dickheads, uh, American presidents before now. Nixon was one. He messed around with the executive power. The, the, the state in, in the past, you were telling me before we came on about your uh, infamous... Uh, Telephone tapping uh, experience, no, but that's much. but that's been, <laughs> but but you know we thought we'd move beyond that. We thought we'd move beyond the state using a, su- surveillance for political me- means. But I, I think that the, I think there's, no no I think he will cling to power, and I hope and I support uh, the Sanders movement. I think Warren would also be excellent. Um, you know I think this move if that comes to power, then the problem is then the brown shirts of the American right really will. They'll say they will take the election of a radical left president as the cue for the next phase in what they're going to do. But uh, how powerful are they? It seems to me just a, 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 a peripheral um, uh, phenomenon on the margins of American society and most people aren't bothered with them. Well, I think... If you, see, if you, if you look at what happened in Charlottesville, uh, they marched, the, the far right marched through Charlottesville. They were t- they were, their claim was that Charlottesville had become a, a culturally Marxist city because it has a university. What they are trying, no, what they're trying to do, their enemy are, is us, the, the two sources, uh, three sources actually, of, of verifiable, uh, verifiable information. One is the professionally regulated press. That they hate that. That's why he's trying to take down the New York Times, the Washington Post. But even more than that, it's the university. They have a theory, the American far right, that the, that the university is the source of all evil. That's why they spend so much time trying to get onto university campuses. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to create a bridgehead for systematic untruth within the university system. But these are tight minorities. They're honestly not. I mean, in the sense that the, the, t- the number of people... Involved in the alt-right, yes, it's probably tens of thousands. The number of people involved in the NRA is, is, is hundreds of thousands. Uh, and the NRA has switched, National Rifle Association, has switched quite dramatically towards pro-Trump activism. Um, but if you, millions of people play computer games. And as I write in the book, and I'm not the only person to write about this, the, the way that the right colonised the largely young male world of, of online computer game playing and, and colonised it for systemic misogyny is we are only now realising how deeply rooted many of you, you know, will have maybe teenage sons or grandsons, looking at some of you, who are, who are, who are, who you will be very surprised that if you try out three or four arguments that you can find in my book about women, you'll find that they've heard them. Uh, these absolutely misogynist arguments. The people who, who, who play games and tell it, on computers. Are because what happens, Vincent, is that like they all, they've all got one of these. They've all got a little uh, uh, microphone and earpiece, and and they talk to each other. So it's never recorded. It's not. There's no record of the conversation. But millions, probably not millions, is an over exaggeration. But hundreds of thousands of people take part in. Gaming, whose culture has become invested with normal sexism. There's 250,000 at least subscribed to the so-called um, red pill Reddit. Red pill is the word for taking the red pill, in, like in the film <coughs> The Matrix, and finding out that the world is really different to the way liberals like us or lefts like us 
I explain it, that, you know, that young women who have a relatively free sexuality are really exploiting men. That's the key idea of it. And the, the other key idea of it is that there is scientific proof that black people are, super, are, are, yeah. are inferior to, to, to whites. This is back on a mass scale. Okay, but um, on a far greater scale was, for instance, the Me Too movement. And, yeah. and the women's movement generally has been such a powerful phenomenon in American society and in European societies as well that these other uh, uh, um, phenomena that you've spoken about are minuscule by comparison. I think, I think there's certainly... There's, there's discontent in the audience. Which, it's, the same, um, the same, uh, it's the same four. It's not. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Well, so the woman in the audience is talking about the algorithms and, and in the book, I, 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 look, in the book, the, the central thesis of the book is, it goes like this. I've just explained to you in the opening bit why I think the neoliberals modelled the market as a machine. That is, overtly, Hayek, and I write about him too, thought that the, the market was a spontaneously emergent order without a controller and it could always make better decisions than individual human beings. To me, to me that's a machine. Hobbes, it, writing about the, the Leviathan, that is the first systematic modern treatise about a state and its rights and our rights against it, in the very first paragraph says, the Leviathan is a machine. It's an artificial sort of a man. And then they're creating the Leviathan behind the private you know, corporations' walls in Google, Facebook, Amazon, etc. to me, because the algorithms, the real algorithms, algorithms are just a set of instructions. Like when you're going through the, 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 the security at the airport, go this way, go that way. Is it you or not you? It's, a sort of, it's instructions you can't break free of. Algorithmic control has become a business strategy for the 10 most powerful corporations, except nine out of ten most powerful corporations in the world. The, the, non, the one that isn't a tech corporation is Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. All the others are tech monopolies who trade in our data, and it's not because they're going, oh, we know, we want to know so much about you, Paul, Vincent. They want to know so much about us so they can control and influence us. That's what happened with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook in the, in the Russian meddling in the, in the uh, election. I've got no doubt it'll be happening right now in the European but election. But why do you say control? For instance, I, I buy books on Amazon. Yeah. And often when I'm, on, I'm sending emails uh, through Gmail, um, ads come up for yeah. books on Amazon. But that doesn't control me. Well, first of all, um, I always say that... Um, it's quite a coincidence that the only two weeks that children in Britain ever play on the street with tennis rackets are the two weeks when Wimbledon is on the telly. Um, so, so I do believe that, that behaviour can be controlled by, by, by the external environment. But the, their aim is to, 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 to present you with choices. And as a, as a, as a rational 360-degree human being with a strong education and willpower, I think you can resist them. I try to resist them. But the... What do they do in what do they do in the in, in, in the in the case of Hillary Clinton? Trump took um, really large I can't remember a really large amount of money's worth of adverts out in four states during the last 24 hours of the election against Hillary Clinton, um, and it was targeted to black people who might be likely to vote Hillary Clinton, and it said Hillary Clinton's a racist. No. 
We only found this afterwards because nobody else saw them. That's the first thing. They have the power to, as it were, segment the public discourse so that it's no longer public anymore. And the, the impact of bombarding you with several messages, so at the same time he would make the speech about Hillary Clinton being a racist, and at the same time his people on the doorstep would do it. Now, some of that's legitimate. It's not right, but it's legitimate. But the use of, the use of smart devices to suggest to us, and also, you know, if somebody knows 5,000 things about you, you don't, you're not capable of, of keeping 5,000 facts about yourself in your conscious front of mind, I don't think. They can outthink you. You know, if they know, if, if, I, if I'm playing Nadal at tennis, if I'm a computer playing Nadal at tennis, and I know that every time Nadal gets pushed to this corner of the, of the, of the court, he does X, and I know it absolutely certainly, I can outplay him. That's what happened with, in the real life situation of the uh, Google's DeepMind and the Go game against the greatest Go player in the world. It just said, I know how you play. I know everything about you. Bang, here's something you wouldn't expect. Uh, and people apparently were like in tears when it happened because they realized at that one moment that a computer with knowledge of you can outthink you okay. and therefore control but, but, you. But uh, you make a big deal about Trump being elected president of America, but it was a freak that he was elected. And had things gone yep. just even marginally different, it would have been Hillary Clinton and it would have been president. Would you have written that book if it, Hillary Clinton had been president? No, absolutely not. Because, because so, I, on, so just on a freak occurrence then, you well, build a whole theory. Well, because because, huh? because what one, one thing leads to another. And, and what... So, okay, if... So I, I, got, I got up that morning and I wrote to the, you know, in, as I was still writing for The Guardian, you know, this is the end of globalization. America as a superpower will, will, will break from the global order. And, and my editors are going, oh, you know, we've got to wait till all the other ones have written their bit before we can publish this because it's a bit extreme. Now, I think I was right. And I think that um, a lot, that New York Times, and it was Guardian, it was Johnny Friedland and the rest of them, all the Guardian centrists, all believed it was, it was a blip. Now, it could have been a blip if the American... Uh, business elite would say, we're not touching you with a barge pole. Sorry, you know, it's, it, first. Two, if the American security elite had said, shit, we've been investigating this guy for Russian connections for months. Get on the case, you know, uh, find it out. What happened? Zuckerberg, uh, Bezos, the bosses of all these companies, queued up to meet him, queued up to be on his presidential council. Uh, in, in other words, the American bourgeoisie immediately thought, we fill your, fill your boots, he's going to give us a $1 trillion tax cut. You know, forget all their kind of misogyny and grabbing you by the pussy. And the other thing was, the, the security elite, which was supposed to defend America against this, failed. Um, and, and we still don't know the full story of that. Even now, the, the Mueller report and William Barr and all this, the, we don't know the full story. All we know is the outcome. He's okay. still in office. So for, that's what made me then say, right, this means... This is, a, this is a turning point for Western society that's bigger than just the election of one right-wing asshole like, 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 like Bush. This is a different kind of elite that wants something different. What do they want? And then I started looking into the, the, the ideological shared mind space. So this is the other thing, Vincent. I say, we are now facing a conservatism, not in this country, but in many European countries and America that has lost its ideological defences against fascism. It doesn't know what it disagrees with fascism on, except it's at the level of extremes and action. In terms of the ideology, 
the white supremacism, the misogyny, the anti-democracy, the anti-universalism, it already shares the, the thought architecture of the extreme right. And okay. that is a big change in, in okay. post-war society. Okay, we we'll go to the audience now, but could you turn on the, uh, the lights so we could see the audience? <laughs> and we get, I'm sorry? He's been waving his hand since... The, that's a very Shakespearean gallery you're in up there, um, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Just oh, want to yeah. ask everyone a question. Because we can see only the people here, is it? Is yeah. Here I am. Yeah, we can, uh -huh. I can see you. Um, I just could ask the audience a question. How many people here believe that we're better off today than we were 30 years ago financially on a worldwide scale? How many people believe that we're not as well off today on a worldwide scale? I was speaking to the CEO of Oxfam and he said we're doing a really good job 30 years ago, it was 26 to 30% were below the poverty line. Today, we're 6%. Yep. So there's many things happening. Some of them are really negative. Some of them are actually really positive. When I look around Ireland today, I see many people running. I see many people walking in really well-kept parks, really well-kept beaches in the mountains. I also see the things you see, mm. and we have to be mindful of them, but not to lose hope. We still have nature, and we have, still have ourselves who can enjoy nature and each other. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. To just one point, you don't seem to labour on, Paul, and I obviously find your presentation resonates profoundly with me. But surely inequality is at the root of a lot of these problems, the impact of the financial crisis, people who are wounded, damaged, lost a lot of money. It obviously affected their political perception. And you've made the point very eloquently that neoliberalism, if you like, you know, made, made this literally anti-human ideology. It normalized, it made legitimate inequality on a scale that would have been unthinkable. And against that background, uh, you're not really perhaps leaving enough emphasis on that particular point. And every action produces an alternative reaction. And I go to the United States a fair bit myself, and I must say, Trump, in my view, has actually created a counter-revolution against himself. The full implications yeah. are working out. I mean, people who I never thought of my wildest dreams would be politicized are actively now involved in politics. So I just think perhaps you are overly pessimistic, though you offer a very compelling analysis, and this is a terrible bad example to finish on. For example, Irish property prices would be twice what they are at the moment if the central bank didn't release, didn't resist the most bizarre pressure, you know, where there's a problem with property supply. I'm just sort of suggesting yeah. there is the potential for, uh, uh, you know, for proper social control of the market to lead us. There is, there is hope, I'm trying to say it against yeah. that background. Can I come back on, on those questions? So, okay. So, on that, look, um, or let me speak to your thing first. This, do you know what the elephant graph is? See the elephant graph? It's like, I'll draw it, like, as if you, as, so you have to see it, like, like this is the bottom 60% of, of, of the world's society, and their income has risen a lot in the last 30 years. And as you get to the top 15%, I can't remember, 15, 20%, it's, it's, it's not risen much at all. So the, the improvement is huge here, for the bottom half of world society, but for the top third, it's not so much. And for one particular set of people, it's negative. And then 
This is why they call it the elephant graph, because at the last 1% is massively positive. The trunk is raised, as it were. So there's the elephant's hump, there's the face, the, that's the elephant. Okay, right. Who's this? It's the working class of the developed world. And that, it, no, I am glad, and we must acknowledge that this, what you say, that the, the, the globalization of production has raised the standards of living, albeit. You know, if we have to say, well, Stalin raised the, you know, the, the standards of living in, in, in Russia through a brutal process of industrialization. I've visited, I've been in slums where a million, uh, sorry, millions of people live in, in Manila, not fit for human habitation. I've been in the sweatshops of Shenzhen in China. It's fit, as long as you're prepared to say, by putting people into slums and sweatshops, fine. Okay? But the problem we have is this. The enlightenment, rationality, the, the scientific method were all invented in countries that, whether you like it or not, had horrible empires, but a intelligentsia and a bourgeoisie that wanted these things. It want, in the end, democracy, human rights, etc., were created in democratic countries that were developed. My fear is that if we lose commitment to democracy in the developed world because life is so shit for a lot of people, which is what I think is the ultimate problem, if we lose it there, it's not, it'll take a quite a long time for, for, the, the, for the elephant's hump, whereas we're talking about Philippines, Indonesia, India, China, are these democratic places? These are places where you can buy a PhD, I'm afraid. And, and, and that's going to take us a long time to get back to where, what we got in 400 years of, of, of the Enlightenment. Ridiculously you know, hierarchical and sexist and racist though the Enlightenment was. I don't want to lose it. And so I do want to focus the resistance to neoliberalism where I live, in the developed world, um, in the democracies, and I want to defend democracy. So, so, and I think that kind of answers your question as well. The, for me, it's not... Inequality doesn't explain all this. There's a, there's a view of, if only we threw money at people in the, on the far right, it would be fine. And on the doorsteps of Northern England, where I've campaigned for Labour, you say to people, look, you know, I, ca I can't agree with you on migration, but what about you vote Labour or vote for the left and we'll bring a hospital and, and you know, re reopen your school and the maternity ward and what about a decent job for your son? And about two-thirds of them say, I can see your point. Okay? A third say... I won't say what they say, but they say, I don't care. I, I don't care if the economy collapses. I just want them all gone. Now, that's what we're... It's not ju it can't be just inequality. I don't know what it's like here, but I think there is, there is a deep-rooted uh, helplessness of the self that wants an explanation of the world. And if the market no longer explains the world, human biology has to be, you know, I... Blacks versus whites, women versus men, lesbians and gay. Oh, that's, what, that's why it came back, in my view. I could be wrong, but the, the book is a thesis that tries to explain why I might be right, that's all. Okay, yeah, this person here. Sorry, there's a lady over here. First, yeah. Ah, right. Uh, just a quick question, Paul. Do you think, when we're talking about this disengagement and apathy, that this gets to the heart of what has happened in Syria. Because I've been a filmmaker but a campaigner for the last eight years trying to raise the, you know, a, 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 give a voice yeah. to Syrians that are not able to, be, uh, to speak uh, in terms of, we know what's going on because the technology yeah. is the reach. We, yeah. you know, the, the citizen journalists are yeah. sending us the texts and the messages. 
uh, in real time. Yep. And yet there is an inability to be able to raise it to a level of consciousness and outrage that says we can't put up with this anymore. Well, well without wanting to get into all the rights and wrongs of Syria, I, I, I've experienced this as a journalist like this, that the first reaction to by authoritarians, and Putin and Assad are authoritarians, two revolutions was to suppress the truth. It's just it's censorship. But in a network society, that doesn't work. So the next thing, the next thing and I, I try and go through this in detail in the book, the next strategy was what I call bubble creation. So that, separate, so that Israelis and Palestinians live in a separate internet bubble. And that people who believe you know, that the white helmets are CIA agents and that everybody who comes running out of a, a building being gassed is an actor, they live in one bubble, but people, presumably like you, who think the opposite, live in a separate bubble. Okay, that doesn't work either because there's always truth. There is always verifiability and the university and the press and the bookstore are the sources of verifiable truth. And the filmmaker, congratulations. But, so what's the final thing? Flood the conversation with hate and bullshit so people stop talking. That's the third phase that I think is, it's not new because it, it was done, it was exactly what Soviet disinformation always did, and, and the Russians simply used Soviet disinformation techniques. It's what the Nazis tried to do a little bit, but they didn't need to because they controlled every typewriter and every printing press. But now, I would argue that the default response of people in power to, to discontent is to make it so difficult to be in the conversation that people then retreat from it. I've done it myself. I've retweeted perfectly good tweets that have been intermediated by some anti-Semite. So I go, shit, I better not... Who wants to do that? Uh, or everything you say, you're a shill, you're an agent. You're, I, I get this. I mean, if I read all this stuff and took it seriously, I would literally be mental, mentally ill. Because every, every day I would wake up to a random selection of people saying I'm an asshole, I'm worse. That's there to prevent us having this conversation. No, I don't mind... Why do you read it? Why, I, well, I, well, sometimes it, you can't, you're trying to work out what, you know, who's resigned today, and, and it's literally it's like finding out what happened in Game of Thrones by accident, which I did. You know, it's there. But I try, I, I try not to. But I also, social media did start as a conversation. I was really an early adopter as a journalist of social media, and I enjoyed it when it was a, convers when it was a, a conversation between adversaries. But when it's just filled with disinformation and hate, you... You kind of, it's there to, to fragment the world. It's no surprise to me that the real social media that a lot of people are moving to is WhatsApp, owned by Facebook, unfortunately. But, but WhatsApp is where you can control who you're talking to and, and it's not public. So you never get into trouble for being humanly fallible. Yeah. And, but, and also the Russians can't see what you're doing and can't <laughs> vector the troll farms into the conversation. This thing about fake news, I'll just make a point about yeah. that. It seems to me that we've had fake news for a long, long time. The Irish Times had an ad for itself recently which said, facts, no agenda. And I thought, whoever thought this up it must be an utterly unreflective person because, <laughs> and because the choice of facts yeah. is, is driven by an agenda. And that, yes, it's true that... A lot of things that are published in newspapers is fact, but a lot of really important facts are ignored. Yep. And this has been the way it is for a long, long time. Facts that matter to ordinary people are, are, are set aside, and facts that suit the, uh, or that fit with the um, comfort of an elite are 
given expression. This is true, but I just want to add one thing. Let me give you a concrete example. Okay, do you know what Breitbart is? Breitbart is a, a right-wing website. Its aim is to pull fascist propaganda into the mainstream where Fox News picks it up and echoes it via Breitbart so they don't have to go to the fascist sources of it. Give me an example. A video came out uh, on the anniversary of 9-11 of a protester systematically pulling up little American flags from a lawn near a 9-11 a memorial. And there was outrage that all the right-wing trolls got immediately onto this. It was in a university, so the first thing is Breitbart story. Um, university condemned for man digging up uh, the little flags. Then vice-chancellor of the university, dean, uh, refuses to answer questions. Then next thing, uh, Democrat senator refuses to condemn university. Then Paul Joseph Watson, one of the biggest uh, Twitter people, right-wing Twitter guy in London, he's on the case, he's pumping this out. I showed this to a bunch of very left-wing, very touchy-feely drama students not long after it happened. They showed them the film and, and they, were out, they were really outraged. They said, shit, you know, it's, look what's happening. The left doing this has, has really fueled the right now. And, you know, it's terrible, this guy. Go back to the source. It was the gardener. The gardener, the, the, the ceremony had finished. He was about to cut the grass. He took all the things up so he didn't damage them, right? But, so what we're dealing with is the industrialization of the echo chamber the fake news has always been there. And I think the problem is you've, that's there everywhere. And I'm sure it's there in Irish civil society. Um, we as journalists, we, I, I certainly include myself, we didn't realise it was happening. We thought it was harmless. And I do think, think we're okay. an existential I'll give you an example of, of, of this. And it is that the Watergate scandal. And uh, Bernstein and Woodward got Pulitzer Prizes and all that for it. And uh, the, much, uh, the, uh, the much kudos attached to the media because of this, particularly the Washington Post. But just at that very same time, Nixon was bombed illegally, mm. bombing Cambodia and taking the lives of 300,000 people. Mm. This was, went ignored by the American media, and which, which feasted on Nixon telling lies about a silly break-in in Democratic Party mm. headquarters. And, and now... This, uh, the point I'm really making is the media has always been the problem. It isn't something new. It is the problem all along. I mean, I, I just think it's a qualitative difference. But anyway, do, do somebody, there's lots of people... Right. Oh, OK, this woman here, sorry. Sorry, here. Can we go? A very quick one-line question, uh, and a little bit related to, to what's been said, is uh, do you think that um, Tony Blair should have been prosecuted for war crimes? One word answer, yes. Next question. Okay, this person now. Hello. Um, I have a question about climate change. Um, you know, obviously we need multilateral organisations internationally to deal with it, but we also need a coalition or a, or a, a joint response from political organisations nationally as well. And I was just wondering what your thoughts on that were. So, so what are the themes of the book that we haven't touched on yet? But it's one that I, I ended up by accident almost deciding to do is that my argument is that the, the, the solutions level, as well as politics, there is, there is human behaviour. There's a rediscovering the 360-degree self and asking oneself, what is virtuous behaviour? There's a critique in the book of the kind of default ideological morality of capitalism, which is utilitarianism. If it makes most people happy, it's fine. Um, and the kind of... God-given rule sets. 
I have come to the conclusion that faced with existential threats like climate change and artificial intelligence, we, it's so strange for a Marxist to be saying this, but we need a virtue ethics. We need an ethics that asks what is the good society and what is the person in it? What do they behave like and what, what qualities and reflexes do they have? Now, I think climate change is what... Uh, Me Too is a great example of this, of, of deep, granular behavioural change being caused by women at workplaces saying, no, this, cannot, this is the last-ditch defence of male chauvinism. And I think also climate change has done it because Extinction Rebellion... Is no, see, Greenpeace and co, you know, yeah, they'll take over somebody's whaling ship or they'll take over a BP, they've done it today in London. But Extinction Rebellion asks us to change our behaviour. And, it, and it, I think it's begun to, to cascade over into behavioural change. And how do we make people change their behaviour? We, 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 we signal to each other that this is uh, not virtuous, this is not right what you're doing. Stop using this fucking plastic straws in, in Starbucks, all of this. Now, do you know what the right's number one thing is that they hate? What's the word? Virtue signalling, right? Because they, that's, that's what they want us to not do. But we, I think we're going to have to, I don't care about virtue signalling, virtue embodying. Um, and one of the arguments in the, towards the back of the book is that one of the left's big problems, the political left, is that everything's focused on political action and nothing was focused on self-behavioural change. And that's because Marxism gave people per permission to ignore mor moral philosophical questions. I mean, that, it's a joy to be here because if I say the words virtue or 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 or, or ethics and Aristotle and the rest of it. You, you know, everybody, anybody who's been to a seminary has read this, let alone a, a philosophy department. But in Anglo-Saxon culture, it became very, very hostile during the neoliberal era to any questions of, of, of moral authority beyond what the market says is moral. Okay, yeah. Homo sapiens, I think you made some critical well, this, the squirrel got me. The, the, when it, when it, the, the, the squirrel eating the ecstasy. No, no. The, the, he's talking about Yuval Noah Harari's book, uh, Sapiens. Is that what you're talking about? It's very widely read here. Yeah, no, it's, it's there. You can't miss it. Look, I, the first thing about, I'd say about him, he's a fellow penguin author. Is I don't really know what he's trying to say. But what he is trying to do is d describe you, the, the essence of, 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 of human uh, biology and anthropology. And he's, he's largely right, and I think that we can learn lessons from him. But what he says in the, in the book Homo Deus, Deus, towards the end, is, quote, unquote, we are already algorithms. That another quote, between determinism, that is, what's in our DNA and our background, and randomness, that is, what happens to us that can't be predicted, there is no room for free will, says Yuval Noah Harari. Well, I think... Free will is something that, that we conquer through historical progress, through the developing of the species, our, our, our human capital, to call it a weird thing, and through our conquest of technology and of our interaction with nature. So, see, I think it's quite dangerous that, that, that we're living in a time when we've got best-selling authors telling us we have no free will and that neuroscience proves there is no free will and that at the same time that you know, left-wing academic thought Postmodernism says there's no humanity anyway. It's a social construct, and there's lots and lots of brilliant scientists who hold the met metaphysical view that the world is a computer, a giant computer being computed. Okay, which is ultra determinism. 
That's like Hegel saying the world is the mind of God unfolding. In the book, I try and, you know, quite ambitiously, I think, for a journalist, to attack some of these ideas because they are at the root of what I call the, 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 the mass folk religion of fatalism. That fatalism rules in Western society now. Lots of young people believe they will never get on unless they win the X Factor or become a premiership football player. Um, and they can't see life being better for them. And I, this is the, my, my, my ask in the book, my what do we do, is not so much this time about politics. It's about how do you rediscover agency and, and the belief in the ability to change your circumstances. And all, all that tirade and more you can read about, about Harari's book. Uh, but that's my view of him. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, that, that, yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah, somebody who, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, it, it's, it's, it's just a comment in a way that, like, at the heart of the neoliberal ideology is, is, is self-interest, and that is what the whole market thing is fed into self-interest, and what it broke down was a more communal-based outlook based on the commons. I mean, it changed human natural resources into products yep. and human relationships into services, which really was broke broke down yeah. that that thing in, in 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 society which is which is what needs to be brought back and through something like climate change which makes everybody face the end of humanity yeah. um is 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 what you know is is something that will bring back a communal based outlook rather than a self interest outlook I mean, as you may know, I, I wrote a book called Post-Capitalism four years ago, which, which tried to argue that, obviously, climate change... There's a chapter about climate change in it, but I argued that we understand the threat of climate change. What we haven't understood well enough is that the, the capitalism that will have to meet it is dysfunctional. And even in the climate movement, you'll find people who've got a, 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 a granular model of the, of the Earth's climate, you know, modelled to a one kilometre one kilometer dots on the planet. But their model of the economy is like a train set, sort of, you know, a very simple model of, of, a, of a stable economy. So in that book, I said, look, the problem we're going to have with the climate transition is that, is that too many people believe capitalism can deliver it. I don't. However, now... It's even more compressed. If we're gonna, if we, it's, the argument is flipped for me slightly. If we've got to achieve zero net carbon by 2030, capitalism's going to have to deliver it. Uh, but it's going to have to be a, a, an intensively reformed capitalism, where I think you know, I think we have to take control of the of the energy production system. We're going to have to introduce compulsory new modalities of using energy. Uh, the uh, Ocasio-Cortez Marquee Bill, this is the, the Green New Deal in, in America, is well worth reading. It's an inspirational, slightly unimaginative at times, but inspirational thing about we can do this in 10 years. But we're going to have to, I've calculated on the back of my amateur economist's envelope, the American deficit now is, four, is, a, is a trillion a year, 5% uh, of GDP. I think to emulate what Franklin Delano Roosevelt did at the start of World War II, if they were serious about doing that, the deficit is going to be between four and ten million, sorry, between four and ten trillion a year for five years. The, the, the debt will be massive, but then again, the economy will expand massively. I think it's doable, but the idea that anything less than Ocasio-Cortez and Sanders is, is, is acceptable. If, you know, if another Blair comes to power in Britain, if, another, if, if there's more 
Macron in France. It, it won't happen. The radicalism in politics, that generation is demanding of us that radical change. We've got to make it. But you know, my book is not another book about climate change. My book is about how you rediscover the agency to make this, this and all the other changes that we need to do. Okay, I think we've near the end. Near the end. Okay. I got the. Um, I just curious, going back to the start of the talk, really um, about what's happened over the last thirty years or so. Um, how much you refer to they a lot, and I'm wondering how much you think of this as like in a movie with a room full of evil geniuses sitting around a conference table, or how much it's just a bunch of rich, lucky idiots that you know, that people aren't actually orchestrating this and it's just that the conditions have arisen to enable things like the change with the, yeah. like the destruction of your community by credit, yeah. for example, that wasn't planned no. as we will break up communities with no, credit. No. It was... So, okay, I think it became, uh, it became uh, insulting to the neoliberals to suggest that neoliberalism was a policy and could be reversed. Okay, but now I think that's been proven. So I think it was a policy. It was called the Washington Consensus. It was designed. It was implemented. Its secondary effects, of course. You, what, I mean, a Blairite minister once said to me, I said, why are you doing these things? They said, well, we try things out, and then when they work, we do more of them. So there's that aspect of it. Um, however, with what's happening now, uh, there's a great phrase, and it pops up again and again in my book, uh, that, from Hannah Arendt, when she's describing the, the rise of fascism in Germany. She called it the alliance of the elite and the mob uh, against the working class. It's that the actual words are the temporary alliance of the elite and the mob. What they wanted, she says, was access to history, even at the price of destruction. Now, that entire article by her is very well worth revisiting because the book is on totalitarianism. What I, what I think I mean by this is there is a, a section of the, of, the, of the poor who want to reverse history. They don't want lesbian and gay rights. They don't want um, climate change. The guy I start the book with, you know, insisting to me that climate change is bullshit um, uh, in, in Washington, the farmer. They... For, they want to reverse history, and so do these oligarchs like Trump, Putin, uh, Duterte, Orban. They need history to be reversed into a nationalist frenzy. But the, the words Hannah Arendt ends that sentence with, even at the price of destruction. Observing what had happened to the German national character in the world war, she said the problem wasn't the German national character, it was the disintegration of the national character. I think that's what we're seeing worldwide. We're seeing the disintegration of a liberal democratic character that we all learn in those 30 years of, of relative success which you talk about that is very dangerous and I think it is being pushed. I think there is a rational design by this. You, in the book, you know, I list the, the thinkers of the neo-reactionary movement who thought all this out in advance. And of course, like Blairism, when they have a success, they think that works, let's do more of it. Um, so it's a combination of design and improvisation and spontaneous effect. Um, that's probably a good way to end it. Uh, but I don't, I'm not depressed because I don't... don't no, I'm not. I don't think... I, I think defeating fascism is a bit like the World Cup. You know, like Jules Rimet Trophy. If you won it three times, you've got to keep it. Do you remember that? Um, Brazil kept it. I think if we defeat fascism twice in 100 years, we get to keep democracy. I don't think it comes back. I think the... Yeah, in Britain, if, 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 if only the under-60s voted, Labour would win every constituency. 
In America, it's more or less the same for the Democrats. Uh, the, the world is turning. This generation's the most educated generation that's ever, ever lived, if a little bit dependent on their cell phones uh, and a bit obsessed with Tinder. And I don't think they... You can't inflict on them what Hitler and Mussolini inflicted on the Italian and German working class. I, I remain optimistic at that level, but, my goodness, we have to fight. Okay.